Hello, everyone. Welcome to our listeners in the Big Apple from across the U.S. and around the world. I'm Jeff Goodman, and you've tuned into Rediscovering New York. During the day, I'm a real estate broker with Halstead Real Estate, and I love New York. Rediscovering New York is a show about the history, texture, and current vibe of our amazing city. On most programs, like tonight's, we focus on an individual New York neighborhood. We explore its history and its current energy. We get into what makes that particular New York neighborhood special. And we do it through interviews with historians, local business owners, nonprofit organizations, preservationists, musicians, artists, and neighborhood personalities. Sometimes we host a show about an interesting and vital color of the city that's not focused on one particular neighborhood. If you're an avid listener to Rediscovering New York, and I hope most of you are, prior episodes have covered the history of U.S. presidents who came and lived in New York. We've talked about the history of the women's suffrage movement in the city. We've also talked about the history of Irish immigrants who came here. We had special episodes during Stonewall 50 about the city's LGBT history. And by the way, all of these are available on podcast. We've explored the history of bicycles and cycling. And I even hosted shows on the history of punk and opera in New York. They were separate shows, by the way. Uh, in the future, uh, we'll journey to some of the city's parks or the subway or a couple of our iconic train stations uh, or the city in the age of a particular social or political movement. After the broadcast, each show is available on podcast. You can hear us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and other services. Tonight, we're visiting a neighborhood in the heart of Manhattan, Murray Hill. Our first guest is our special consultant and Rediscovering New York regular, David Griffin. David, good, David. How are you doing tonight? Good. Uh, David is a lifelong architectural enthusiast. He provides creative sales-enhancing services for the national real estate community. David's the founder and CEO of Landmark Branding. His clients include architects and design firms in addition to developers, brokers, and marketing companies. His Room at the Top series, which is co-hosted with Jennifer Wallace of Nascent New York, is the only ongoing networking series in real estate to feature tours of Manhattan's greatest buildings. And I can say that because I've been on them. His writing has appeared in Real Estate Weekly, Metropolis, Dwell, and the National Trust's Preservation Magazine. And a hearty welcome to you, David, for coming back to Rediscovering New York. Thanks a lot, Jeff. Always glad to be here. You're a regular, uh, but some of our listeners, uh, and I know our listenership has been going up, so I know we have people who are hearing you for the first time, uh, they don't know what your background is. Um, you're from the metropolitan area, but you're not from the city itself, at least not originally. No, I uh, grew up on Long Island near Port Jefferson. And uh, when I was about 12 or so, our family moved up the Hudson River Valley to uh, near New Paltz. Uh, we're right on the river, actually. So that's really nice. And uh, I've been there ever since. But I've uh, lived and worked in the city my whole life, pretty much. Well, I know you as a New Yorker. I mean, not only is home where the heart is, mm -hmm. but your, your work, you're so engaged with the city and its right. architecture and its mm -hmm. businesses. Uh, speaking of which, how did you get interested in architectural history and specifically in the architectural history of some of the greatest buildings in New York? Well, uh, growing up in the area, uh, my mother was an artist, a painter, and so she always made sure when we were traveling uh, that we noticed details of things. She used to build out dioramas and make sketches of the city neighborhoods we'd be visiting, whether in New York or Montreal. I think that kind of woke up my eye to those details. Uh, my siblings and I were also the youngest ever, or the first children actually, to be hired by New York State Museum as costumed interpreters. We worked at Old Bethpage Village Restoration out on Long Island uh, for the Bethpage Fair every year. And a chance to kind of stay over, actually, overnight in some of those old Dutch houses from the colonial period was really very exciting. And I think things like that just got me sort of started on uh, just a lifelong kind of concept of trying to find out more about who built those buildings, where they came from, and uh, how they'd all come to be. Does the Bethpage Summer Fair still happen every summer? Um, it's actually in autumn. Yes, it's the annual annual uh, Bethpage Fair. Well, I'm a little envious of you. I never told you this. Uh, uh, David and I both went to Vassar College. The year I graduated, I went for a job uh, with uh, the state. It was the 100th anniversary of FDR's birth. Mm. And uh, at that point, uh, uh, the Republican government in Washington had donated like a, a paltry $100,000 to commemorate FDR's birth, but New York State had allotted a lot, like in, mm -hmm. in the millions. 
and they were having this travel exhibition going around. And uh, I interviewed, but I didn't get the job, unfortunately. Ah, <laughs> so I'm rather okay. uh, envious of you and, and the work that you did. Um, moving to Murray Hill, what are the generally accepted boundaries of the neighborhood? Because people kind of think sometimes of Kip Spay, Kip Spay, Murray Hill, and uh, the boundaries sort of move around in um, some people's minds. Right? I mean, the exact boundaries are disputed. They vary fairly widely depending upon things like zip codes, fire codes, that type of thing. There's a, a whole bunch of different ways that the neighborhood is interpreted that are superimposed on each other. Generally speaking, uh, people think of it as being 34th Street to the south, um, East 40th Street or 42nd Street to the north, and Madison Avenue or 5th Avenue to the west with the East River to the east. Uh, myself, I do think that the boundaries uh, from 40th Street to 34th and uh, 5th to the East River are probably a little bit more, more coherent because those are the blocks that are zoned residential. Uh, in addition to uh, low commercial, whereas 40th to 42nd Street is skyscraper offices. And to me, that's a little bit more of its own kind mm -hmm. of midtown corridor, the 42nd Street corridor. I'll also say that if you are crossing the street at 40th and 5th Avenue, you are at the highest point in what remains of the original Murray Hill. And you have a moment as you're crossing that street that you can look up and down 5th Avenue and really get a sense of looking down from both sides uh, at the city that uh, actually no other particular place on that avenue uh, really gives you that, that, that sense of a view. Wow. Uh, and the hill is actually higher than it is now, which we'll get to in a little bit. But uh, uh, let's get to the Murray part of Murray Hill. How did, how did Murray Hill get its name? Well, it was named after the Murray family, uh, specifically after Robert Murray, who was the, the patriarch. Uh, the Murrays were a mercantile family that settled in the area in the 18th century, and they created an estate that was located on a fairly steep glacial hill that peaked between Lexington Avenue and Broadway. Uh, through the 19th century, Murray Hill was relatively isolated from the rest of New York City, which at the time was centered in lower Manhattan. Uh, Murray Hill became an upscale neighborhood only during the 20th century, late 19th and 20th centuries. Um, so the Murray family were 18th century Quaker merchants. They were mainly concerned with shipping and overseas trade, so they were not necessarily farmers, uh, which is good because the landscape that the Murray estate stood on was, in fact, um, extremely stony. It was very rocky. It was a glacial deposit. So, so it, it was wasn't really like, a farm. It was an estate, but not a farm. It was an ornamental farm. They probably did grow um, you know, vegetables, flowers. There could have been flowering fruit trees. Uh, they could have, you know, th there was probably, there were definitely farm accoutrements, but it was not a farm in the commercial sense. This wasn't how they were deriving their, they weren't deriving their income from anything that they grew. And Not the, like, say, uh, Stuyvesant's family's farm. Exactly, from, you know, for, exactly. For there were very many prosperous farms through throughout Manhattan during its colonial period, uh, but the Murray farm was really sort of a, uh, almost like a, a gentleman farmer's estate. It was one of the first true aristocratic estates established in Manhattan Island of the time. Um, so so what, what kind of business then was Robert Murray largely in to have been able to own this estate? Basically shipping. So he, was a, uh, he, he owned a mercantile trade company. So shipping, overseas trade, uh, that would have been things like dry goods. It might have been things like raw materials. Uh, he might have licensed shipments and things of that nature. So, uh, yeah, the, far, the farm was definitely a farm, but it wasn't the main source of income. Uh, there was a very large house there. Uh, the Murray House? The Murray House. <laughs> what a coincidence. Exactly. Um, it was, uh, <coughs> from what we know of it, it was a very large square house, and it was approached by an avenue of mixed trees that led from what was in the Boston Post Road, which is now Broadway. Uh, it commanded views of the East River over Kipps Bay. Uh, the total area of the farm is just a little over 29 acres. So as we say, it's it's sort of like a suburban retreat. It's not one of these vast pieces of property where a lot of agriculture was going on. Um, the southern end of it, the plot was fairly narrow. At the northern end, it extended from approximately where Lexington Avenue now is to a spot between Madison and Fifth Avenues. And the uh, the mountain that it was on was called the Inklenberg. Berg obviously being an old Dutch term for mountain. 
And what is Inkland? Uh, the incline. Oh, the incline. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So Inklenberg, meaning that it was a, a steep mountain. And this was a very abrupt mound of glacial hill. It was typical of most of midtown Manhattan, still unmodified post-glacial terrain. So uh, it would have like gravel, boulders cemented together into this kind of impenetrable mix of density. Uh, and it was on a crown of uh, a type of rock known as schist. So the natural rise of this was from 34th Street, sinking towards 42nd Street and reaching from Lexington Avenue to Broadway. Um, as we mentioned before, the soil really would not have been ideal for farming, and the house, like other grand projects that were being created at that time, further up in the Hudson River Valley, um, basically they provided refuge from epidemics during the summer. They provided cool air, uh, a, a sort of a, a sense of breezes and things and hot weather. Because it was so elevated. It, it was mm-hmm. elevated. And they were, um, as one historian put it, uh, theaters of refinement. So they were uh, places to to entertain guests over long weekends or periods of time. As opposed to theaters, which were more popular. <laughs> yes, exactly. With raucous crowds and uh, that, those kind of theaters. Uh, uh, some of our listeners may not know that uh, Manhattan actually is uh, from a Lenape term meaning Manhattan, and that meant the island with the big hills on it, I think. Hmm. <clears throat> um, Interesting. But no longer. We'll get to what happened to the hill in Murray Hill in a minute, but Murray Hill has some pretty storied Revolutionary War history. Okay. Yes. Um, it sort of had its own uh, revolutionary tea party, if you will. Uh, Very, very different from the famous one in Boston in which people attacked a ship and threw all the canisters and crates of tea overboard. Uh, Mary Lindley Murray was the mistress of the Murray estate of Inklenberg Mansion, which is what the house was called. And she is actually credited with delaying William Howe and his army during General Washington's retreat from New York following the British landing at Kipps Bay, which took place on September 15th of 1776. Well, just uh, just want to backtrack just a second. The uh, Washington had evacuated his troops mm-hmm. from the biggest battle of the war, which was the, ba- the Battle of Long Island, also then later known as the Battle of Brooklyn. And he evacuated his troops to Manhattan, where they were hanging out. Yes. And then a month later, or three weeks later in September, the British invaded Manhattan in exactly. Kipps, uh, from Kipps Bay. So as the story goes, uh, Mrs. Murray... Uh, invited the officers to tea at her mansion and succeeded in delaying the British troops for a period sufficient to allow for a full American retreat. Um, She's said by some people, including um, an early historian named uh, DeWitt Talmadge, to have, quote, saved American independence by detaining Lord Howe long enough to permit Israel Putnam, a general under Washington's command, to pass up the Greenwich Road from the city and join Washington's forces at the north end of the island. This action saved 3,500 American soldiers who otherwise would have been cut off and captured. And probably died on the prison ships. Uh. Probably that would have been uh, the case. There was a, a surgeon named James Thatcher who was working with the Continental Army. Uh, he kept a journal that's one of the prime sources of information about the military happenings of that particular time. And in an entry for September 20th, Thatcher tells the story as follows. Quote, the British generals repaired to the house of a Mr. Robert Murray, a Quaker and friend of our cause. Mrs. Murray treated them with cake and wine, and they were induced to tarry two hours or more, Governor Tyron frequently joking her about her American friends. By this happy incident, General Putnam, by continuing his march, escaped, and it's since become a common saying among our officers that Mrs. Murray saved this part of the American army. So there's the... uh, the New York Tea Party for the American yeah. Revolution, uh, which a lot of people have never heard of. I'd never heard of a New York Tea Party before you uh, <laughs> before you spoke about it. You know, one thing th- that I'm wondering is that you know Mrs. Murray clearly wanted uh, favored the Continentals and and, and the New Americans, um, but uh, her husband or someone else in the family ended up being a loyalist and had to. Uh, Get the hell out of Dodge after the Treaty yes, of Paris. Yes, um, her, it, Ironically, her eldest child, Lindley Murray, was a New York loyal a lawyer, and he was forced in exile after the Revolution as a loyalist. Um, when he returned to England, Lindley wrote 11 school textbooks, which had their greatest success actually in the new United States. So he was able to recruit a lot of his financial losses through selling these books through American schools. Uh, in, in part, it was because no international copyright existed and um, books could be sold very easily. So there were some 16 million copies of his books sold in America. 
His English reader was extremely popular for readers in the United States from 1815 well into the 1840s. Wow. So even though we revolted and got our independence, uh, we still relied on the former mother country for for our education. Absolutely. Well, we were all still speaking English at that time. Um, So he was probably the most famous member of the family after Mrs. Murray herself in terms of that period. Mm. Well, before we take a quick break, I just want to mention that the Hill thing, at one point in the 19th century... uh, uh, Murray Hill was the uh, actually the northernmost boundary of what we call the line of settlement of what had become a right. town, mm-hmm. but it was still pretty hilly. What happened that that broke the hill up? Uh, I mean, basically, the the railroad came through. Uh, there was a winter in 1808. There was an embargo that closed New York Harbor. This was still part of the ongoing, you know, uh, Battle of 1812. So post revolutionary shocks. Uh, there was an actually a work relief program that kept out of work dock workers busy in reducing the height of Murray Hill. Between 20 and 40 feet were sliced off its summit and used for landfill around uh, where Turtle Bay is. So um, the hill actually would have been much steeper today had they not done that. It would have been much more noticeable, I think, as a a kind of topographical landmark. And um, they used that basically to sort of just fill in what was a very, very marshy area on the east side of the river. Uh, in the meantime, in 1833, a railroad was cut. Uh, a cut was begun. It was to carry the New York and Har- Harlem Railroad through Murray Hill. The route under the most prominent obstacle on its right of way was opened on May 1st in 1834. And then the locomotives, which met the horse cars that ran through the city streets at the station at 27th Street, which was to the south, could pass by the reduced hill much easier. Um, so the Park Avenue Tunnel is the successor to that, enlarged and relined. It's been devoted to automobile traffic since 1937, and that's the way that vehicular traffic uh, sort of went, quote-unquote, under what was a much larger hill to start with. Oh, wow. All right, fascinating history. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation about Murray Hill with our first guest, David Griffin. Be back in a moment. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. Are you stuck in a rut? Negative thoughts, feelings, and conversations got you down? Hi, I'm Noreen Sumter, The Potentiator. Tune in every Tuesday at 9 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time and listen for new ideas on my show, Beyond Potential, Live Life Your Way, on talkradio.nyc. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. back to Rediscovering New York and this episode about Murray Hill in Manhattan. David, why don't you tell us a little bit about Landmark Branding? What does Landmark Branding do? Sure thing. So it is, uh, my company provides marketing support services for brokers, uh, for real estate developers, uh, for the owners and tenants of distinguished buildings. I've worked with architects, I've worked with design firms, I've worked with other PR and marketing firms to provide support. And I do everything from editorial, histories, corporate bios, um, coming up with branding strategies. Uh, I lead VIP tours. You've mentioned the 
the tours that I lead with Jennifer Wallace of Nascent Art New York. Uh, she's a great co-partner in that and room, uh, project. The, the Rooms at the Top are great. Right? Yes, the Room at the Top series is fantastic. I also work with Cole Harrell and Caroline McCarthy on the Limina series. Uh, that's a little bit more geared towards tech and fine arts. Uh, and I've done everything from host tours of neighborhoods to individual buildings, uh, work on ways to sort of market and analyze neighborhoods and architectural sort of features. So uh, it's been really great. I have an article coming up in Brownstoner that I'm looking forward to seeing. What is it about? It's about 10 Montague Terrace, uh, the one of the largest brownstone houses to survive intact in New York City. And um, uh, working on a potential book project on the history of the penthouse as an American architectural archetype. So, and I've had the pleasure of sitting through on that uh, on that lecture, which is great. If uh, people wanted to to get in touch with you to find out more about your professional services as it relates to buildings and office buildings, how can they do that? Uh, the website for Landmark Branding is landmarkbranding.com. That's also where my blog is, Every Building on Fifth, which is a capsule history of every building on Fifth Avenue. I can also be reached at D Griffin, G-R-I-F-F-I-N, at landmarkbranding.com. If people have any questions, uh, always happy to provide a free consultation uh, and explain more about uh, how I can assist people. Well, I'm going to give you a little plug. Being at your room, your room at the top series, the way that, that you and Jennifer uh, incorporate the history and the marvel of a lot of these buildings into the way they're marketed really is something very special. Yeah, no, we really enjoy doing those. Uh, Getting back to Murray Hill and uh, the train cut that, that the Park Avenue Tunnel is now there, um, until Grand Central Depot opened in the 1870s and they you know, changed locomotives coming down, uh, that was a pretty effective dividing line that separated two parts of the neighborhood, sort of like, uh, I don't know if that's where the uh, across the tracks comes from. But the neighborhoods really developed pretty differently until, you know, until that happened, didn't they? Uh, I think that that's true, uh, broadly speaking, of all of New York City. You, you see tremendous changes when the railroads come through. And depending on if they're at grade, above grade, or below grade, uh, you'll see some neighborhoods will become extremely popular, become very fashionable. Other neighborhoods will all of a sudden be crowded with types of industry, with factories, with pollution, that type of thing. Uh, a great deal of Park Avenue north of Grand Central, for example, was very, very industrial in character until the tracks were sunken. And at that point, and that point only, did it sort of arrive at the kind of gracious kind of character that we associate with Park Avenue in the, in the popular mind. Prior to that, there were power plants lining that, that avenue for part of the way. Well, speaking of gracious building and gracious living, something else happened in Murray Hill. Uh, I don't know the exact year, but somewhere in the middle of the 19th century, uh, there were covenants written into a lot of the deeds, a yes. lot of land deeds mm -hmm. that ended up substantially influencing the kind of buildings that went up in Murray Hill. 1847. So descendants of the Murray family drew up what was called the Murray Hill Restrictive Agreement. This uh, limited development of the estate that they had inherited to brick or stone dwellings, churches, and private stables. Uh, we might be sort of like, well, brick or stone? Isn't everything brick or stone back then? There were a lot of wooden houses in New York City in the earlier part of the 19th century. And at this point, uh, a lot of the newer development was trying to sort of freeze that out because New York had gone through some devastating fires, including fires in the 1820s and 1830s that had effectively destroyed a great deal of downtown, and they didn't want to see things like that happening again. So uh, brownstone was beginning to become popular after the 1850s. Uh, so speculatively built brownstones, uh, chiefly with Italianate-style detailing, began to line the streets. Uh, during the decade from 1847 to 1857, we know that over 50 major Italianate brownstones were constructed within the Murray Hill District. And they were row houses with street-level entrances. They were houses with high stoops that led to parlor floor entrances. Um, the street-level entrance is called an English basement plan, and the ones with stoops are actually derived, we think, in part from Dutch architecture in Amsterdam, where uh, things were elevated due to the, p the possibility of flooding. Oh, well, one thing you notice, for example, in London, where I lived once upon a time, uh, is that many of the row houses, uh, the entrance to the parlor floors is just two or three steps above, right. and then you have the, uh, uh, the garden level really is a basement. Yes, that's, that is called and the English basement style. Okay, so. makes sense. Um, so residents during the 1850s or 1860s, they tended to be affluent people. 
members of the middle class and upper middle class. Uh, a very prominent resident, for example, is the artist Thomas Sear Cummings, who lived on East 36th Street uh, from the 1850s through the mid-1860s, where he served as a professor of design at the University of the City of New York, now New York University, and he was the vice president treasurer of what became the National Academy of Design, one of the very first, quote-unquote, contemporary art museums in the United States. So in mid-century, um, more and more wealthy people began to arrive, people who were moving up from the Washington Square area, for example. The uh, houses became more substantive, and something very interesting happened. It did happen further north on the Upper East Side as well, but in Murray Hill it really became a, a thing. Brownstones that had been built for the middle classes became the homes of the very, very well-to-do, and many of them acquired new facades that were in Beaux-Art styles. And there are several of those quote-unquote conversions that you can still see throughout a great deal of Murray Hill. We'll be passing a row of you know very handsome brownstone houses that are sort of subdued, and then in the middle of the row there's a kind of a French Renaissance palace or there's a house that's sort of in a, a Spanish Gothic style. Um, occasionally, these will include teardowns that were replaced entirely, like the Delamar Mansion, which is, I believe, at the corner of 38th and Madison, one of the largest Baroque-style houses in New York City. A little bit of an outlier, because houses like that were mostly Fifth Avenue facing Central Park during that period. But there were people who wanted to kind of stay in the Murray Hill area because it, it had established itself as a kind of gentility. And it was very, very convenient to Midtown as well, where more and more uh, serious business was beginning to be done. So you could be a few blocks away from uh, Grand Central Terminal, for example, you know, uh, trains out across the entire country. You walk two or three blocks south and you're on tree-lined streets that might be in a place in Brooklyn. So it had that kind of of two worlds quality about it that I think remained attractive to many of the, the city's movers and shakers, as it were. Well, this brings us to... Perhaps the I was I was going to say the granddaddy, but not to be uh, gender focused about it, uh, the grandparent uh, of them all in in Murray Hill, uh, the J.P. Morgan House. It's really a colossal fortress of a mansion. Yes, it and is. it was built in the 1880s at a time when many of the city's affluent families were building their homes further uptown, like Fifth Avenue in the 50s and beginning mm -hmm. along Fifth Avenue mm -hmm. along the park. Why did Morgan build his mansion in Murray Hill? There were a number of reasons for it. Um, the Morgan family was very conservative. I believe uh, when Mr. Morgan was building his, uh, his house, his mother was still living. And uh, as I recall, she expected to be provided with an apartment in the house at that point in her life. And she did not wish to leave a neighborhood that she thought was perfectly respectable. She thought the people who were moving uptown were fast. That was the term that people used for people who were too brash or splashing their money around. She thought it was vulgar. It also uh, may explain in part, uh, although Morgan, I think, was also trying to say, look, I'm, I'm old school myself. I'm a very respectable person. I don't go in for this, this, this flashy new stuff. Not so like they, new money like the Rockefellers. Exactly. Who exactly. Uptown, so uh, although 1880 is, in fact, a late date for a house of that style to be built, what they're really kind of doing, what, the, what Morgan was doing is he's saying, I'm, I've been around a while, all right? And my house is going to reflect that. So it's a very conservative, very austere house. Probably the last major brownstone built in New York City, along with, interestingly enough, uh, the brownstone complex that um, is now the uh, was the Helmsley Palace, New York Palace Hotel. If you want to see the different a difference in worlds, check out the base of the New York Palace Hotel, also made out of brownstone, but this kind of amazingly opulent Beaux Arts style, and compare that to the very austere. Italian at classicism of the Morgan House. And that's on the Madison Avenue side, yes. across the street from... From the uh, Delamar House. Okay. Yeah. Wow. And the Delamars, mm -hmm. um, it's also thought that the reason why Delamar pulled out all the stops on his house was he was a business rival of Morgan's. And he wanted <clears throat> to make sure that uh, Morgan knew that he had just as much money. Uh, Mrs. Morgan, uh, Mr. Morgan's mother, evidently, once the house was closed, once the, the house across the street, Delamar House across the street was finished, closed her bedroom curtains that overlooked that side of the street and never opened them again. Wow. Big room. <laughs> she was that offended by the, the, uh, the appearance of the architecture. And blocked all that wonderful sunlight out of her room. 
Anyway, uh, how did the Morgan Home become a museum and institution? When did that happen? Well, the Morgan Library, uh, of course, is the personal collection of Morgan. And he built a, um, a library. He used McKim Meanwhite as the architect. So now here comes a little bit of the hypocrisy. Because McKim Meanwhite's building is just about as grand as any public building in New York City was at that time. It was not in the Italian style whatsoever. It was a, the, the very classic Beaux Arts. Uh, there is also another building that was built in the 1920s by Charles Adams Platt. Uh, um, the Morgan Library, what we think of the, as the Morgan Library was actually Mr. Morgan's office and study. And then there is a library room adjacent to that. And then the archive was built later on. And those three buildings were woven together to become the, the J.P. Morgan Library and Museum that we know today. So... Well, can we talk a little bit about uh, some, of the, uh, some of the collections that they have there and what, how yes, important they are? Yes, the collection uh, became open to the public. Um, I believe, let's see, I'm trying to think of what date that was. I know that it was uh, well in the 1920s. They began opening it up. And the very first librarian was a, a very famous figure in New York society history named Belle DeCosta Green. It was J.P. Morgan's personal librarian. She became the librarian's first director. The collection is extraordinary. Uh, a lot of people who are not familiar with it, um, there's just amazing things to see. The more famous manuscripts include the Morgan Bible, uh, the Hours of Catherine of Cleves, which is an incredible work, uh, the Codex Glaisier. There are many authors' original manuscripts, including works by Sir Walter Scott, Balzac, uh, including and things like scores by Bob Dylan, for example, which of course were acquired after Mr. Morgan's time. I was say Morgan was a big Morgan fan of Bob Dylan. Not really a big. I can't <laughs> imagine in the wind. Really, <laughs> really cared for it. Ain't me, babe. Um, <laughs> it, there is a, a tremendous collection of prints and drawings by European artists. Everyone from Michelangelo, Raphael, Rembrandt, Rubens, Gainsborough, Dure, Leonardo, Picasso. Early printed Bibles, including three Gutenberg Bibles, and many examples of artistic book binding. There are examples of Coptic literature. There are works by Emil Zola. There are original drawings by William Blake. Um, the list really just goes on and on. There's a unique Charles Dickens manuscript of A Christmas Carol. And every year, the Morgan Library gives, the young patrons give a marvelous Christmas ball. Uh, it's a, a holiday ball at Mr. Morgan's. And you are allowed to go into the library. They have Christmas trees. They have champagne. They have a bar. And they read a chapter out of A Christmas Carol. And it's one of my, my favorite kind of holiday parties. I look forward to it every year. You know, I should go sometime. Present Company has invited me. And I didn't go in the one time I got an invitation. <laughs> I have to correct that if it ever happens again. Um, what in the couple of minutes we have left? What what is the Sniffin Court Historic District? The Sniffin Court Historic District is very interesting. It is one of New York City's smallest historic districts. Uh, it was created on June twenty first, nineteen sixty six, making it the second oldest historic district in all of New York City and the first historic district in Manhattan. And Sniffin Court, so it's older than the Village because Brooklyn older, Heights was the yes, first historic yes, district. Brooklyn Heights was the oldest. This was number two. Uh, it consists of two two-story brick stables built in 1863. They're in a very early Romanesque revival style. And it's a little alleyway running perpendicularly off of East 36th Street between 3rd and Lexington Avenues. Um, as the carriage houses grew less and less important for carriages, they were taken over and turned into, as so many buildings in New York have been, artist spaces. They were perfect for studios. And the uh, stable that is on the west side of Stephen Court, closest to the street, became the Amateur Comedy Club Theater. The Amateur Comedy Club has been in existence since 1884. Uh, that is their, their present clubhouse. And they are uh, the oldest surviving uh, fully active amateur comedy theater troupe in the United States and possibly the oldest in the Western Hemisphere to still be performing. And they've had that particular location uh, since the 1920s. So I've had a chance to go. That's a, that theater is by invitation only. It's only open to members. Oh, wow. They do black tie performances in which uh, guests are, uh, the, the patrons themselves are expected to wear black tie. Uh, and uh, recent plays that I've seen there have included uh, minor uh, comedies by Chekhov, for example. So it's a, it's a very interesting sort of little world in and unto itself. Sniffin' Court can be seen from the sidewalk, and two things that can be observed are two statues, or uh, I should say rather, a gigantic kind of plaques by the artist Marina Hoffman, who was a major artist who had a studio there. And she, uh, Malvina Hoffman and Harriet Whitney F uh, Frischmuth, both had studios in the court opposite one another. And the sculpted plaques are of Greek horsemen. And those are visible if you look through the gate at Sniffin Court. Well, I've actually 
Mark Hoffman's studio. seen them. They're, they're quite something. Uh, David, in the in the minute that we have left, uh, in the minute or so we have left for our second, let's fast forward to uh, uh, the time that you and I uh, have become adults in the right. 80s and the 90s. Uh, what kind of neighborhood has Murray Hill become in the past couple of decades? What well, is it I think beginning in the, the early 1990s, Murray Hill started to kind of reinvent itself. Uh, it had been throughout the 20th century seen as a, a sort of bastion of conservative lifestyles, people who went to bed early, people who took tea. Uh, you know, when your most famous landmark is a library, <laughs> is kind of the going, you know, sort of... Uh, kind of atmosphere. And then in the 90s, due to the fact that it was so close to places like Grand Central, it was the first neighborhood that people coming down from colleges in New England or from upstate New York, where you and I went, for example, you, you get out, you walk two blocks south of Grand Central, and there's Murray Hill. And it's this actually very well-contained, very sedate residential area. It became very popular uh, with younger college graduates who were moving into the city roommates would take over an old apartment in a brownstone or move into one of the buildings that had been built in the 1950s or 1960s. And uh, Murray Hill became actually kind of uh, a very lively neighborhood on the weekends for that whole generation. And it still sort of serves that purpose today. It's much more kind of open and engaged. I think there's a lot of great restaurants. Uh, you know, there's a lot of uh, very, very intimate small bars and taverns and things of that nature. And it's uh, it's actually gotten a reputation as you go east of Lexington Avenue for being a little bit raucous, I think. so. Oh, Lord have mercy. I know. Well, anyway, uh, uh -huh. on that note, uh, we'll be back in a moment when we're going to speak with uh, one of the owners of one of those raucous businesses. Yeah, exactly. Uh, David Griffin of Landmark Branding, thank you so much for being back to Rediscovering New York. You can reach David at dgriffin at landmarkbranding.com. Thanks, David. Thanks a lot, Jeff. We'll be back in a minute. Take care. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network at www.talkingalternative.com. Now, broadcasting 24 hours a day. Talking Alternative. Do you run or are ready to open your own business? Hi, I'm Jeremiah Fox. I've been operating and opening small business for the last 25 years, and I'm the host of the new show, The Entrepreneurial Web. Tune in every Friday at noon Eastern time for insights and stories on the nuances of running small business right here on Fridays at noon, talkradio.nyc. love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. Are you stuck in a rut? Negative thoughts, feelings, and conversations got you down? Hi, I'm Noreen Sumter, The Potentiator. Tune in every Tuesday at 9 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time and listen for new ideas on my show, Beyond Potential, Live Life Your Way, on talkradio.nyc. Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. back. Support for Rediscovering New York comes from our sponsors, the Mark Maiman team, mortgage strategist at Freedom Mortgage. For assistance in any kind of residential mortgage, Mark and his team can be reached at 646-330-4735. And support also comes from the law offices of Tom Siaka, specializing in wills, estate planning, probate, and inheritance litigation. Tom and his staff can be reached at 212-495-0317. Our show is about New York, especially its neighborhoods. There's another great show on the air about New York and specifically about the business of real estate. It's called Good Morning New York, Real Estate with Vince Rocco, my friend and colleague in Halstead. Vince's show airs live on Tuesday mornings at 9 a.m. on voiceamerica.com and also on podcast. You can like this show on Facebook, Rediscovering New York. 
You can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter. My handle is JeffGoodmanNYC. If you have comments or questions, or if you'd like to get on our mailing list, please email me, uh, Jeff at RediscoveringNewYork.nyc. One other note before we get to our second guest, even though this is not a show about the real estate business in New York, I am indeed a real estate agent in our amazing city where I help my clients buy, sell, lease, and rent property. If you or someone you care about is considering a move into, out of, or within New York, I would love to help you all with your real estate needs. You can reach me and my team at 646-306-4761. Our second guest on our program about Murray Hill is James Kim and his business Sons of Thunder. James has roots in Hawaii and San Diego, both border towns of sorts where different cultures have melded for the better. He was a pastor of a church plant for over 10 years before opening Sons of Thunder, New York City's first poke shop with his brother John in 2015, where the roots have heavily been influenced, uh, where their roots have heavily influenced the menu and vibe representing Hawaiian and Baja California flavors. The New York Times named the restaurant one of the top 10 cheap and astonishing places to eat in 2016. James is married to Carol and has three young kids who all love poke. Well, I hope they do, if you, since you own a business that, that, that uh, pervades poke. James Kim, welcome to Rediscovering New York. So good to be here. Thanks for having me, Jeff. You and your family are from San Diego originally. Yes. Uh, parents met in Korea, uh, emigrated to Honolulu. Mm spent some time there where my grandparents were there for many, many years. And then they eventually came further east uh, to the West Coast. And we were there, born there. Both my brother and I lived there for uh, a few years. And then because of uh, business opportunities for my parents, moved all of us over here to New York City where we were basically uh, raised. Before we talk about Sons of Thunder, something in your bio, uh, you were a pastor of a church plant. Before we spoke earlier before the show, I didn't know what a church plant was. What is a church plant? So a church plant is basically a infant church. Uh, you uh, have a church come together basically by having someone uh, gather people, and uh, you start meeting sometimes even in a living room or, or a cafe and, and in Brooklyn, sometimes bars. And uh, you gather on a uh, regular basis, sometimes monthly, sometimes weekly. And as you gather more and more people, that plant becomes uh, a baby. And that baby, uh, a few years down the road, becomes an in, uh, a teenager. Um, and so it's basically just uh, a brand new church. And that's how churches get started for the most part in America. And your church was in Long Island City. It was. It was uh, right on 44th Drive and 21st Street, uh, where a lot of development happening right now. We met in a high school, which is not uncommon in New York City. Hmm. What had you and your brother John decide to go into your own business? Um, it's a long story, but I will give you the, uh, the short version. Um, it really came out of a place of brokenness, personal brokenness. I was a pastor, uh, as uh, you know, uh, for over 13 years. Um, I burned out, uh, essentially, and uh, came to a place in my life where uh, my, all my training, my experience was in, in, in ministry, uh, but here I was, uh, having done so, uh, 13 years of ministry and feeling uh, like I couldn't go any further because of just uh, personal things. The way I was doing ministry, I was really expending a lot of energy that um, and giving to people in a way that was not sustainable and uh, really decided that I couldn't do it anymore. It takes a lot of um, centeredness and uh, uh, strength to do ministry, um, there's a healthy way to do it. I'll put it that way. And I wasn't doing it that way. Um, and so I, I, I came out of ministry and basically asked myself and asked, God, God, what's next? I, you know, I, I only knew ministry. I trained in it I, I, and I did it. And um, so there was really a blank slate before me. And in my own personal searching, uh, I really felt like um, uh, God was saying, you know, what do you want to do? What do you want to do? And I think maybe for the first time I felt like um, I was given an opportunity to ask myself, you know, what do I care about? What do I dream about? What are the things that resonate with my own heart? And I really started to feel like um, that it was about uh, helping people through a culture that I could establish and really through, uh, uh, you know, ultimately a, a kind of a, a workplace, a company. Um, but I had no marketable skills apart from standing in front of people and speaking to them or sitting to coffee and uh, with coffee and, and, and counseling. 
But I did grow up in a hospitality family. My parents were restaurateurs growing up, and I'd worked as a cook for many years when I was in college. And so I broached the idea to my brother uh, and to my wife, and um, foolishly enough, they thought it was a good idea. <laughs> and we started uh, exploring, uh, raising funds, and three years later, Sons of Thunder was born. Mm. Well, I suppose you went into a ministry of a different kind, getting to people's souls through their stomachs. Exactly. Which is, which is really, really good. How did you come up with the name Sons of Thunder? That, you know, when I, when I read the name of that business, I thought, wow, that's, that, that's a remarkable name, Sons of Thunder, for, yeah, for a well, restaurant. It, so I'm James, my brother is John, and uh, in the scriptures, um, Jesus has two disciples. They were actually brothers, and their names were James and John, and he affectionately called them the Sons of Thunder because they were troublemakers. But it was really kind of an affectionate nickname for them. And so uh, these are the two brothers who, when they met some uh, people who were not on board with Jesus' teachings and his ways, they would ask Jesus, Jesus, do you want us to call down lightning from heaven to strike them dead? And Jesus would be like, you know, hey, guys, come on, back off. It's okay. <laughs> Don't worry about it. He was Christian. Evan. He was right. He was Jesus about it, where the brothers weren't. But but it's really it, it is a is a term of endearment, um, and it spoke to their passion eventually. What had you decided to open up your business in Murray Hill specifically? Because that's you have two businesses: one in Murray Hill, one in the financial district, both of the same name, Sons of Thunder. How did Murray Hill get get on your radar? Um, so we were looking for a blend of residential and uh, a commercial zone and Murray Hill happens to sit well it's predominantly residential but our location sits just a few blocks from major midtown offices um, so anyone will tell you a restaurant really the bread and butter is are the regulars the people who come week in week out and we knew that for us we wanted to be rooted in a residential neighborhood where we could get to know the people, uh, the residents, but also have that lunchtime uh, you know, rush if it were near enough by. And so we found this location on 38th Street. It's kind of hidden, uh, but people, uh, thank God, somehow well, found us. Well, thunder is hidden, but right. until it makes itself known. <laughs> exactly, yes. Yeah. So, no, so people have found us, and really uh, the residents, uh, the, the people of Murray Hill, have been so good to us. Oh, great. Well, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about Murray Hill uh, with James Kim of Sons of Thunder. We'll be back in a minute. Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. I'm the aptly named host of Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio, big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. Fundraising, board relations, social media, my guests and I cover everything that small and mid-sized shops struggle with. If you have big dreams and a small budget, you have a home at Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio. Fridays, 1 to 2 Eastern at TalkingAlternative.com. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your conscious consultant. And on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. Talkingalternative.com. We're back to rediscovering New York on our episode about Murray Hill. Uh, my second guest is James Kim of Sons of Thunder. Uh, James and I had a, a, a little bit of an intense moment during, during the commercial break. Uh, uh, James mentioned that, you know, I happened to mention you went through a really big change, and he mentioned love and caring, and, uh, and I've not heard 
a lot of people in your business uh, who talk about being in the service industry, but also that being such an important part about what you do. Um, which uh, brings me to something else that was sort of a little bit miraculous. Um, how did you settle on poke and the cuisine that you started? Because it was a little different from what you had intended before you opened the, your business. <laughs> yeah, the, the story is uh, we planned on opening a burger joint, a West Coast-style burger joint, um, uh, about four months prior to opening we discovered an, a mistake uh, that the engineers had made. Uh, they saw that the pipe, the gas pipe coming in to the building was actually about 30% smaller than uh, they had thought. Uh, it was actually sheathed within another pipe. They saw the exterior pipe and said, oh, that's, you know, two inches. It was actually only an uh, inch and a quarter. And so, so it wasn't uh, up to code. It wasn't up to, well, not only oh. that, but it couldn't support all the equipment, all the gas you need to, you know, to fire griddles. And so this is four months before uh, opening. Con Ed takes eight months to a year to dig up, you know, street and re- redo pipe. So what that do you do without... That could be a kiss of death for a business that relies well, on we, the kitchen. Well, four months into doing... Well, we pivoted and said, okay, we're going to do poke because we had it on the menu, but very at, at the very bottom of the menu, uh, about five months, four months in, uh, the accountant basically said, you need to close your doors because this isn't going anywhere. So it, it was almost a kiss of death. Wow. And then you had, I mean, not to use a biblical term, but, but you and John had either realization or a vision to do something else. Um, yeah, so we, we knew that, uh, well, poke is something that we grew up eating. And, uh, and in 2015, uh, very pe- few people knew about it. But we thought, you know, New Yorkers are savvy. They're adventurous eaters. Uh, we think it could work. Uh, and, we, and, we, and we went with it. Um, but as I mentioned, about four months in, uh, we were explaining it more than selling it. People would come in and ask, what's poke? And we say, well, poke <laughs> is a Hawaiian dish, raw fish marinated, served over rice typically. It's delicious. It's, it's healthy. Uh, and they would say, ah, oh, that's interesting. And then walk right out the door. Uh, but then um, something very uh, unexpected happened. Uh, about four months in, we got written up in the New York Times by Lagai Mishan. And she and that uh, very uh, favorable review literally changed the landscape for us. And how long after that did you open up your restaurant in the financial district? Um, so we were open for about, I'd say, uh, almost two and a half, three years before we opened up uh, on Pearl Street down in the financial district. Describe the vibe of Murray Hill, James. What is it that you like about, now that you've been in business there for, for more than three years, what is it that, that you like about the neighborhood? Um, Murray Hill is so interesting in that it really, for us, the way we experience it is it's, it's a great mix of, of longtime residents, brand new uh, younger folks uh, straight out of college, and then you've got this uh, really interesting international um, group coming from the UN and all the missions and, and consulates, uh, and then obviously the offices as well. So it's, it's really uh, uh, an interesting mix. When I compare it to f- the financial district, you don't get that there. It's, it's pretty much you know office workers in the financial district, and you get some residents, but Murray Hill all day long. You don't long. have the same international component. No, you don't. The, I, I mean, New York is international just by virtue of being New York, but you certainly see uh, a lot of uh, people working uh, for the UN near the UN coming in, and, and that makes it really, really fun. Do you, have you found that the neighborhood has changed? I mean, New York is a, every place changes, and New York is a, a, a city of neighborhoods, but also of change. In the, in the couple of years that you've been in business, have you seen any changes at all in Murray Hill? Um, we have, and, and I think it mostly has to do with uh, the development that's happening. Uh, even on Third Street, for example, uh, there's a, a ton of uh, buildings being knocked down, uh, and uh, new ones going up. Um, there's also some vacancies happening, unfortunately, because of uh, you know just New York again. With you mean commercial vacancies? Yeah, commercial. Yeah. A lot of it. Uh, uh, well, more than more than when we had first moved in in 2015. Um, just recent, uh, just within the past two years, we feel like. And there's another one that went down, and, and there aren't businesses moving into those spaces. So that's unfortunate to see. Um, 
but definitely developments, residential developments, uh, new condos going up, and then uh, losses of some some businesses that uh, that people you know uh, were frequenting. Have you seen some of those vacancies uh, brought new businesses that had not been to the neighborhood before? Uh, yeah, so th- I, right, so there there have been some new businesses that have come in, and that's always really good to see. Uh, you know it. it I don't know if you've ever heard this uh, this theory about why there are gas stations. They're all they all congregate on the same corner. Uh, why would they do that? It's because that that becomes the the corner where there are gas stations. So everyone goes there to get gas. And you know, depending on what side of the street you're on, everyone wins. All boats are lifted by you know by the rising of the water. And I feel that way about businesses. Like if 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 you become an area where there are multiple good restaurants, then it really helps all the businesses. Uh, and that's how we've experienced Murray Hill. Uh, when a new uh, restaurant opens, uh, it just it feels like the neighborhood's doing well, and more people will see it as a destination to go eat. Murray Hill has been famously known for many, many, many years as a food desert. I've I've heard it called that by more than you know a dozen people who've come in, and they've come in and said it's Thank been known more God. as a bar place, a like right. hangout place, the party, yeah. you know, over the last ten, fifteen. Years. No, but I, but within the, well, at least in the four years we've been there, we've really seen some really interesting uh, eclectic food come in, and uh, it's just really cool to see. Would you have any advice for someone looking to open a business in Murray Hill? Absolutely. Um, I think just any kind of advice uh, or general advice is uh, love what you're selling or putting out there. That's the first thing. But the second thing is get to know uh, the other business owners in the area, either through associations or just by going into their shops and talking to them and, and letting them know you're there. And uh, we found that uh, 99% of business owners are so willing to help other business owners, especially if they're in, this, if they're in the same neighborhood. Um, so we've gone to know um, uh, very many business owners. And, and just one, I'll just shout out Perk Coffee. They're around the street on, on 37th Street. And uh, we share our staff discount with their staff. So they'll come in uh-huh. and say, hey, I'm with Perk. And we'll give them uh, our very deep discount, a staff discount to their staff. And then when our staff goes into their coffee shop, uh, they get free coffee. So mm. things like that really help. Well, James, thank you. Uh, we're out of time. What's the address of, of Sons of Thunder? It's 204 East 38th Street between 2nd and 3rd on 38th. Well, thank you so much for being on Rediscovering New York and for sharing your um, very inspiring and heartfelt story and your journey about how you you and John uh, became the Sons of Thunder right in Murray Hill. Uh, if you have comments or questions about the show or if you'd like to get on a mailing list, you can email me, jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. You can like us on Facebook and follow me on Instagram and Twitter. Once again, I'd like to thank our sponsors, the Mark Myman team at Freedom Mortgage and the law offices of Tom Siaka. One more thing before we sign off. I'm Jeff Goodman. I'm a real estate agent at Halstead. And whether you're selling, buying, leasing, or renting in New York City, my team and I are dedicated to our clients and come to our work with passion as well as the best expertise in New York City real estate. You can reach us at 646-306-4761. Our producer is Ralph Storier. Our engineer is Sam Leibowitz. Our special consultant is David Griffin of Landmark Branding. Stay tuned at 8 p.m. right here on talkradio.nyc for Beyond Potential, Live life your way with my friend, Noreen Sumter. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. Do you run or are ready to open your own business? Hi, I'm Jeremiah Fox. I've been operating and opening small business for the last 25 years, and I'm the host of the new show, The Entrepreneurial Web. Tune in every Friday at noon Eastern time for insights and stories on the nuances of running small business right here on Fridays at noon, talkradio.nyc. I'm the aptly named host of Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio, big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. 
fundraising, board relations, social media. My guests and I cover everything that small and mid-sized shops struggle with. If you have big dreams and a small budget, you have a home at Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio. Fridays, 1 to 2 Eastern at TalkingAlternative.com. Hey, all you crazy listeners. Looking to boost your business? Why not advertise on Talking Alternative with very reasonable rates? Interested? Simply email at info at TalkingAlternative.com. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network at www.talkingalternative.com. Now, broadcasting 24 hours a day. Talking Alternative. Do you love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. 